Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. I'm glad y'all are here. Hope y'all had a great uh, Thanksgiving, a happy time with family, and that you got your fair share of the appropriate foods during this time. Let me, uh, my name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me just take a quick poll. Um, <clears throat> raise your hand if uh, the sweet potatoes have marshmallows in them or not. So if, they have sweet, if they have marshmallows, yeah. Uh, those no marshmallows on sweet potatoes. You raise your hand? Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. That's good. That's good. Uh, cranberry sauce and canned. Canned cranberry sauce. Okay. Real cranberries for the cranberry sauce. Okay, now here's a controversial one. No turkey on Thanksgiving. Ooh. We've got some rebels here in the room. Myself, one of them. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Like I said, my name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors, and um, you may hear that my voice is a little bit uh, uh, not at its peak. That's what happens when you go to Chicago for Thanksgiving week and spend some time with an 18-year-old nephew who also goes to daycare during the week. And those of you who've had kids or remember being a kid, you know that kids who spend time around other kids tend to carry with them stuff. So um, I will do my best to not strain my voice uh, and hopefully make it to the end. But just imagine that there's tons of energy in my voice because there usually is. I'm just going to be a little bit more low-key to conserve uh, my voice. If this is your first time with us or your first time in a long time, I see some people I haven't seen in a while. I want to say once again, welcome. Glad you're here. At the end of the service, I'm going to be in the back. I'd love to say hi to you. So uh, come, tell me uh, what your favorite dish on Thanksgiving is, whether it's when you cook or when you get to enjoy. And if you are a guest and haven't gotten one of our welcome gifts, make sure you grab one of those on your way out. Um, I want to start a little bit on a somber note first and just acknowledge that in the last month, there have been a number of violent incidents where numerous individuals have lost their lives, um, where someone has taken the lives of numerous individuals. We've lost members of the UVA football team. We've lost folks who were at a Colorado Springs nightclub, many of them part of the LGBTQ community. And uh, this past Tuesday even, we lost employees at a Chesapeake Walmart and a 16-year-old boy. Uh, these events uh, of sudden violence and loss shock us. They should shock our system. Um, it is appropriate that they do. Um, and when these happen, we may wonder. We may wonder things like how many more of these uh, must happen before things change or before this stops. And the reality is I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know how many more of these we are going to have to endure. But I deeply long for it to be none. I long for there to be no more of these. And I never want to become accustomed to them happening. I never want to grow desensitized or simply say, well, that's just the way things are. I don't want to be okay with their presence in our society or in our world. We may also ask questions like, how do we respond in these situations, especially when we are far away and may feel hopeless or powerless to do anything? I want to give you three things that I'm doing as I respond to these events. The first is to check that I'm not becoming desensitized. Now, it's burdensome to feel pain and sadness every time one of these happens, but we should feel pain and sadness. It should hurt. It should make us sad. It should make us uncomfortable. So I'm checking that I'm not becoming desensitized, that I can still feel the loss and the pain of these things happening. You might want to do the same. Second thing I'm checking is, is there any action I could take? 
Now, maybe I can't take action directly in the situation. Maybe I can. Maybe there's a political uh, position or, or, or some sort of change that I'd like my leaders to enact. I can call and say something. I can write a letter or an email. Those are actions I can take. But particularly in situations where certain communities are targeted, are there people in my life from those communities that I can reach out to and check in on? Is there any action I can take? Uh, and the last thing is make sure I'm praying. And that's one thing that we can do as a community. We can both take meaningful action and pray meaningful prayers in the midst of these situations. That's one of the gifts that we have as followers of Jesus, that we know that we can take action in this world, but we also know that there's a spiritual dimension to everything that happens in this world. And we can appeal to the Heavenly Father and the host of heaven to intervene in the ways where intervention is needed. So would you join me right now? Let's do that together. Let's pray for these situations and for the people affected by them. Gracious God, <clears throat> you are the God who comforts uh, and is near the brokenhearted. And there are brokenhearted people. We're specifically mentioning these three situations, but there are brokenhearted people all over. Right now we pray that you'll be with the folks in Virginia and the folks in Colorado Springs and the folks around them who are hurting, who are feeling brokenhearted. Lord, some of them, for some of them, uh, feeling your presence with them at this time is just the thing that they need, and they don't even know it. They may not know you. Would you show yourself to them at this time as the one who stands with them, as the one who comforts, as the one who brings peace? Lord, I pray for the folks who've uh, perpetuated these actions. Lord, would you bring conviction? Would there be repentance? Would there be turning from them, God, to something new? I pray for the folks who have power to make changes that would lead to a prevention of these kinds of events. Lord, I don't have an agenda. I don't know what the right action is, Lord, but there are people in power, in positions of influence who can take action. Would you give them wisdom to take the right kinds of action? And Lord, I pray for peace. The scripture tells us that Jesus is the prince of peace, and peace is needed in our world. Peace is needed in the midst of these situations. Would you bring peace, Lord? And Lord, in the ways that we can be the kinds of people, Lord, who create atmospheres and environments where peace is the presiding word, where violence is not normative, where loss is not to be expected and we become desensitized to kind of the kind of violent loss, may we be the people who cultivate environments where we don't just simply expect there to be violent loss. May we create the kinds of environments where people can feel joy where people can feel safe, when people can encounter you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I had the opportunity, the privilege even, to visit Mallorca, Spain for the first time. Mallorca is an island off the southern coast of Spain, and it's where my grandfather's family is from. Uh, and I had the opportunity to spend a few days there, and as I walked the streets and just spent time in that environment, uh, it felt really familiar to me. Uh, like, just being in that space felt like, like I was supposed to be there. And some of it was really odd or silly things. Like, uh, in Mallorca, almond-based pastries and desserts are, like, super popular and super common. I happen to love almond pastries and desserts. Something you might not have expect uh, off the coast, uh, on an island off the coast of Spain, pizza is incredibly popular in Mallorca, Spain, right? It's something that they eat regularly. 
They put really weird things on their pizza, right? They are an island, so they put seafood on their pizza. I'm not on board with that. But uh, those of you who know me know that I love pizza. It's one of the joys I had living in New York for many years. I became spoiled because I ate really good pizza. Um, I love pizza. And it was just these odd things that made me feel like, wow, yes, I'm connected to these people. I am from this place. Even though I had never been there, it felt incredibly familiar. It was a fascinating experience. And the highlight was getting to spend my birthday uh, in the port town of Sawyer, which is where my family sailed from. It's where my great-grandfather, uh, early on in the 20th century, departed with his brothers, heading to Puerto Rico. They sailed from this port. And as I was walking that port town and sitting uh, at restaurant and eating and just watching, I felt like I was walking in their footsteps. It felt like I could feel their history, like I could feel my family's history in that place. And I was thinking about the stories, and I know some of the stories of my family going back a few generations. Most of them, though, are from uh, the time in Puerto Rico. Um, but even the stories that I don't know, I felt like I was carrying them in me. I felt like they were part of my narrative, and they are part of my narrative. In ways we realize and ways sometimes we don't realize, we carry, we all carry the legacies of our families. We all carry their stories in us. In good ways and in ways that are not so good, the history of our families says something about us. It's contributed to the women and men we become. Now, my family story and my own story, as I'm contributing to the story of my family, has lots of good things. It even has a few that one might say are great things. But my family story also has pain. It has sadness. It has things, situations, events, members, that my family would rather become lost to history. And even knowing all that, even knowing that there are things about my family that my family would rather be forgotten to history, there was something deeply satisfying about feeling that sense of connection to all of it as I was sitting at this poor town. It's feeling that resonance that came when I was in the land where they came from. I felt strangely at home there, even though I'd never been there even though it had been generations and someone from my family had been there, I felt strangely at home there. I felt a deep sense of wellness, like this was how it ought to be. I felt maybe even a little bit of joy. Joy is one of those words that just jumps off the pages of Scripture. It's one of those themes that's woven throughout the narratives in the Bible that tell us the Christmas story. And joy is something more than an emotion. It's a word that's hard to pin down. Something more than an emotion. It's greater than happiness, though happiness may encompass some of what joy is. It's deeper than nostalgia. It's more enduring than sentimentality. It's more than all those things. Joy is this profound sense of satisfaction, this profound sense of gladness, and it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away even in the hardest situations, the kind where we would normally expect to experience despair, the kind where we would normally expect maybe even to head towards hopelessness. Joy endures in the midst of those situations. It's this belief that all things and all manner of things will be well. And joy found, finds its greatest fulfillment in the child that was born in a manger who would save the world. Now, it's hard to do joy justice with words. But as we start this series, which we're titling Unspeakable Joy, to acknowledge that it's hard to do it justice with words, we're going to do our best. We're going to do our best by looking at the passages that tell that first Christmas story, 
that usher in the one who brought love, who brought peace, who brought hope, and who brought joy. I'm glad you're joining us for this Advent season, this season in which we are going to experience and talk and long for joy. In the Bible, we have four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of them, Matthew, starts with Jesus' family history. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1? We're going to read Jesus' family history. And I want to tell you right off the bat that Jesus, in Jesus' family history, not all of it is great. There is pain. There is sadness. There is loss. There are things that maybe one would want to forget. And yet... In Jesus' family history, there is joy and there is hope. So we'll start reading in Matthew chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. And if you've ever read names in the Bible, you know that there's a lot of weird ones. So I'm going to do my best to get through the pronunciation of all of these. So here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations, all from, in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Genealogies like this one were not uncommon in ancient literature. They served a purpose. And they were used especially in biographies of people. Uh, they were used to establish the importance of the subject. Remember, uh, writing implements and, uh, were scarce. Writing was not so common as it is ubiquitous now, whether it's digital or in hard copy. And so if you were going to write a biography of someone, you had to establish why this person was important enough to waste their equivalent of pen and paper on or to use their equivalent of pen and paper on. So they would use genealogies to establish the importance of their subject, to establish perhaps royal lineage or noble lineage, to say this person comes from the kind of stock that we want to write about, that we need to know, that we need to remember. Now the book of Genesis contains more than a few genealogies, and they are laid out a little bit different than the genealogy in, uh, that we just read in Matthew. 
Because in Genesis, the genealogies belong to the person that started them. So they tend to start with the person who the genealogy belongs to. And then what they do is they'll list the descendants, right? We have the genealogy of Abraham, and we'll have a genealogy maybe of Isaac, and it will list all of their descendants. The person who starts the genealogy then is the most important person in that genealogy. The genealogy is said to belong to them. And Matthew turns this on his head. He turns it on his head by making this genealogy belong to the person whom it leads to and making that person the most important person in the genealogy. And he clues us to this by naming Jesus first in the genealogy. You may remember we started with this is the genealogy of Jesus. And it doesn't list his descendants. Rather, it names the line that leads to him. He names him first. Rather than being Abraham's genealogy, as it would have been expected to be if this were an Old Testament writing or if this were in Genesis, this genealogy belongs to Jesus. He is the most important person in this line. And the reason for this, the reason for him being the most important person is that he's not just Jesus who descends from David, who descends from Abraham. He is Jesus the Messiah. Right there at the beginning, Matthew clues us in that there's something different about this person. He is Jesus the Messiah. And that title has weight. Matthew's gospel is thought to have been written mostly to a Jewish audience. And that word, Messiah, had weight. It had gravitas. It had deep meaning and importance to them. With that title, Matthew is is making something clear to all who would read or hear his gospel. He's saying that this Jesus, whom he's about to write about, is not just important because he comes from Abraham and he comes from David. He is important because he is the anointed one. Because he is the one who was spoken about and written about. He is the promised one. He is the one who has been set aside and blessed for a specific purpose. He is the one who has been called to be the liberator. The one who would redeem his people. The one who would set the captives captives free. He is the one who has been set aside to be the Savior. And that's what the Jewish people were waiting for. Jewish people were waiting for, and they were longing for a Savior. These were people under the rule of a Roman Empire where there were limits to what they could and couldn't do. They were not an entirely free people, and they were waiting on a promise to be fulfilled. Even through centuries where it seemed like God had been silent, they were waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. And that promise doesn't just come to them. It reaches far back to a time where the people of Israel had been cast out from their land. They had been exiled. They had lost their temple, their place of worship. They had lost their place to live. They had been taken away. They had been broken down. It reaches back through time, through that time. It reaches even further back to the establishment of the line of David, to his time as a king, and even further back it stretches to a promise, a covenant that was made with Abraham, a covenant that said that through him and his people all nations would be blessed, that goodness would come. So it's not a coincidence that these are then the touch points of Matthew's genealogy, that it's written to a people under Roman occupation waiting for deliverance. 
that it mentions the time of the exile to Babylon, that it anchors itself in David and Abraham. Matthew is saying, this is the one who was promised. This is the one who fulfills a promise that stretches back centuries, centuries and centuries. The time has come. Matthew is saying that in Jesus, a promise is being fulfilled. And it's a promise that produces joy, and it's a promise that produces hope. It produces joy because even though the people had turned their back on God time and time again, and by stretching that promise back through history, there is also a reminder of all the times that the people had failed on their end of the promise. They had failed to keep their part of the bargain. They had not lived up to what they had agreed to. It brings joy because even though they failed time and time again, God is still going to be true to his word. He's going to live up to his part. He's going to do what he said he was going to do. Even though there were time and time again where the people turned their back on God, God's love had never decreased. Nothing they said or did could ever affect the love that God had for them. God was still going to be faithful, and he was being faithful in the coming of Jesus, and that brings joy. It produces hope. It produces hope. Because they had been waiting for a long time, and you and I often find ourselves waiting as well. We may find ourselves waiting on a move of God. We may find ourselves waiting on an answer to a promise that we feel we have received. We may find ourselves waiting on deliverance to come. We may find ourselves waiting on goodness to break through. We may find ourselves waiting for the hard time to end. We may find ourselves waiting for those things that we hear said are true about God to be experienced by us. By those of us who call on him and what we see in this passage, what we see in the genealogy of Jesus, what we see in the coming of Jesus, is that even if the wait feels long, God still always comes through. And so we can have hope. We can have hope that even if it hasn't come yet, it will come. It will come. <clears throat> There's a song by a Mexican rock band. They are one of the uh, most famous Mexican, most successful Mexican rock bands in the world. They're called... Mana in Spanish, in English it would be manna. And the song is translated loosely, the title, On the Pier of San Blas. And it tells the story of this woman who sees the man she loves. She sees him off as he goes off on a sailing trip. He goes and he parts from the port of San Blas. And he promises her that, she'll re that he'll return. And she promises him that she'll wait for him. And so day after day, she comes to this pier. She comes to this port and she waits for him. She waits for him right at the spot where they said goodbye. He, he, she waits for him with the same dress that she had on so that, she, so that he won't get confused and not recognize her when he comes back. He wants to make sure he'll recognize her. And years pass, and he doesn't come back. And he doesn't send word, and nothing is known of him. And years pass, and she still waits. Years pass, with no news, years pass, and people start to talk about her. They start to call her the crazy woman on the pier of San Blas. And some try to act and get her some help, but she refuses to be moved. She, she's ha she has hope. She has hope that he will come back. And she held on to her hope. And she died alone. 
There's not a happy ending to that story. Some of us are skeptical about hope because we feel like we might end up like that. Like we might end up talked about, ridiculed. We might end up alone, our hope unfulfilled. Maybe we've waited for years already. Maybe joy seems out of reach by this point. Maybe our hearts have become hardened to hope because we feel we need to protect ourselves from disappointment and from pain. But unlike that woman, we're not hoping on just anything or anyone. We're hoping on a God who time and time again has proven that he comes through, that he is faithful to his word, that he delivers. There are examples in the scripture and in history of people waiting a long time, but God always seems to come through. And that gives him credibility. It gives him credibility and, it's the, and the strongest case for that credibility is here, the story of Jesus, the Messiah. The fulfillment of a promise that had been given centuries before. That is the strongest case for having hope in God. Friends, if you're here and you're feeling like it's time to give up on hope, like it's time to stop feeling some of that pain, like it's time to turn aside and go for something else, let me tell you, it is always too soon to give up hope. It is always too early to quit. It is always too soon to turn away. It is always too soon to give up hope in the God who always keeps his promises. Now this genealogy of Jesus produces hope and joy not just because of the covenant, the promise that it hearkens to. It gives hope and joy because of the people that are, that are mentioned in it and the stories that they represent. <clears throat> Now, there are, these are people, uh, there are people in his genealogy whose stories are recorded in other places of Scripture. If you've read the Bible uh, with any sort of uh, detail, you may have recognized some of the names. And when you heard the names, you thought of the stories. And maybe there were some names that you were like, huh? Who is that? And you may, you may think, well, maybe I haven't read that part of the Bible. And that might be true of some of them. But others of them, there's just nothing else mentioned about them in the Bible. There's no story. They are just, in the scripture, a name. We don't know anything about them. But here's the thing. God knows them. God knows their whole lives. God knows them, and God chooses to include them here. There are non-Jews in this story. It's a noteworthy thing that in a, story, that in a genealogy written to a Jewish audience about one who would, who would be a Messiah, a title that was relevant to a Jewish community, Matthew includes non-Jews. He includes people like Rahab, people like Uriah, people like Ruth. It's a reminder that from the time that this promise had been given to Abraham, all peoples were meant to be included. God's blessing was going to extend to all the nations, to all the peoples. It includes us as well. The story of Jesus, the story of his genealogy brings hope and joy for all peoples because it reminds us that we can all be included in the family of God. No matter what our background or our family history, whether we have the right pedigree or not, whether we do things that are remembered by history and written about or not, regardless of whether we have the right family pedigree or not, we can all be included in the family of God. Whether our stories are remembered only by our family as long as there are people alive 
who knew us or whether we are forgotten to time. God never forgets us. Our stories are important to him. He fashioned us for the lives that we are living. He knows our name. We can be included. We can all be included in the family of God. That brings hope. That brings joy. We don't have to be spectacular to be included in the family of God. We don't have to come from the right part of town to be included in the family of God. We don't have to have made all the right decisions in our life to be included in the family of God. We can all be included. That brings hope. That brings joy. It's also worth noting that in Jesus' genealogy, women are named. That was an odd thing. The inclusion of women in a genealogy would have drawn the attention of anyone who heard or read this genealogy because women weren't commonly included in these sorts of things. This was uh, a culture that undervalued women, that underappreciated them. And yet we have women like Tamar, like Rahab and Ruth, who I mentioned earlier. We have Bathsheba, who is not named but is alluded to as Uriah's wife. We have Mary. They are there, even though women were undervalued. They are there because they are valued by God. Matthew is telling us something in including women in Jesus' genealogy. He is reminding us that the undervalued and marginalized are seen. And they're not just seen, but they are afforded dignity. They are afforded importance in the family of God. And that's all because of Jesus. And that brings hope. And that brings joy. At its best, the church has been this kind of place. The kind of place, the kind of people who have upended how society decides who is important who is worth remembering, who is worth giving voice to, who is worth listening to, who is, worth, um, <clears throat> who is important and who isn't. The church at its best has always upended that. Has always upended that because of this. Because people like Rahab and Ruth are included in Jesus' narrative. Because Mary is included in Jesus' genealogy. Because those that society has marginalized and undervalued, Jesus gives dignity too. Jesus gives value because they are all created. We are all created by a God who loves us. Some of us have felt like we are on the margins, like we've been undervalued, like dignity has been taken from us. And in the family of God, there is no dignity taken. Dignity is afforded. You are seen. You are valued. You have dignity in the family of God. Genealogy of Jesus isn't just names. There are also stories behind those names. And you'd think that a genealogy that is meant to establish the credibility of a Messiah, of an anointed one, of a sort of a kingly and priestly figure, would only include the stories that bolster that sort of reputation. It would include the best stories, the heroic stories, the stories where people do things that are holy and good, and there is nothing else. There's only uncommon piety in their stories. And there's definitely some of that in Jesus' story. But there's also the kind of stories that you'd want to forget, that you'd want to keep away from from a lineage that's meant to establish the credibility of a Messiah. There are shady pasts in Jesus' genealogy. There's bad reputation. The genealogy of Jesus doesn't hide the dark moments. It doesn't hide from the lying or the adultery 
or the murder or the abandonment or the idolatry. There are stories of happiness and there are stories of pain. Jesus carries the legacy of the promises made to Abraham and subsequent generations. He carries also the royal legacy of David. He carries the faithfulness and loyalty of people like Ruth. But he also carries violence, the stories of violence. He carries the stories of deceit. He carries the stories of abandonment. He carries the stories of sexual sin. And just like Jesus' story has all of that, all our stories have things that have been said and done that have been painful and harmful. Sometimes those things have happened within our own lifetime. Sometimes we have been the ones who've, been perpetr- who've perpetrated these things. Other times it's just part of the family history. What do we do with those dark parts? What do we do with the parts that we would rather forget? What what do we do with the parts that we would rather ignore, that we would rather be lost to time, both in our story and in the story of our family? Well, I found that people tend to do one of two things. Sometimes people run from them. They run from them. We even try to pretend that these parts of our stories don't exist. We try to erase them from history. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago and we were talking about, the, about her family and she was mentioning sort of going up the line and she got to uh, uh, one and she was like, oh yeah, uh, my grandparents had this many kids and then there's this one, there's this uncle that we don't ever talk about. Something happened before I was born. Something happened. No one's ever told me what it is. I'm not allowed to ask about it. But it was something bad. Sometimes we run from those stories in our history, those stories in our own lives. We try to pretend that they didn't exist. Other times, we fight them. We fight those stories. Regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not, we commit ourselves to acting entirely in the opposite way of whatever is in that part of our history, whether our lives or the lives of our family. We try to act as if we can single-handedly change the course of our family legacy or our family history. And that is a heavy burden to bear. Usually what ends up happening when we choose to fight against our family history or our own history, usually we end up overcorrecting. Usually we end up bringing other types of dysfunction. For many years, the thing that would run in my head was I wanted to be as uh, as far away from what my father was like as I could. I would say things, I'm not going to be anything like my dad. I'm going to be better than my dad. And in many ways, it felt like I was doing that. I was certainly more successful than him at school. I got along better with people than I did, than he did. Um, I, 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 I achieved things. I got jobs. I got promotions. I was better than him. Do you hear what's creeping in as I'm saying that narrative? Pride crept in. And the problem with that is that it became really hard for me to deal with failure. Because when I failed, I felt like I was not being better than him. Like I was being like him in his failures and the way he failed in life. In some ways, I was like him in that. He couldn't handle failure either. He blamed everyone else. 
I started to blame myself. Maybe I'm just not good enough to be better than my dad. Maybe I'll never achieve it. Something had to change in my life. Friends, whether we choose to run away from our family history or our own past, or we choose to fight it, both of those approaches still imply that we are being defined by the past, whether our family history or our own. And what we see in Jesus is a life lived differently in how it relates to his family history, to the past. His story doesn't deny the heritage, both the good and the bad, nor does he try to overcorrect it by trying to not be like the worst parts of his lineage. He doesn't make that the focus of his life. What he does is he lives a life that's out of the ordinary in its faithfulness to God in his love for God and his love of people. And living that kind of life transforms humanity and it can transform us and it gives us a new way to engage not just with our own past but with the history of our family. See, because of Jesus, the dark parts of our stories can be acknowledged without letting them define us. They can be acknowledged. They can be named. They can be seen without owning them without letting them define us, without having our lives being dictated by either running away from them or fighting against them. They can be acknowledged without defining us. That's true both of our family's past and of our own. Jesus' story is one in which he lives a life where he gives himself in love of God and in love of people. He goes bringing about good news to people, doing good to the people he encounters calling people to a new way of living, inviting people to the kind of life that can be transformative. It's, a kind, it's the kind of life that leads him to give himself for all of humanity, to carry the weight of the burden of humanity's rebellion and independence from God. It leads to people betraying him, crucifying him, laying him in a tomb. It feels like the end is there, but then on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. And a story that felt like he had come to a conclusion suddenly continues on. That's the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. The things that feel final and definitive in history, the things that feel final and definitive in our lives, the things that feel final and definitive about our trajectories no longer have to be final and definitive. Just like there was resurrection after death, there can be more beyond the pain, beyond the failure, beyond the disappointment, beyond the ways our family maybe set us up poorly, beyond the ways maybe we have set ourselves up poorly. Because of Jesus' resurrection, our stories can become ones in which all will be well. And that's not just a platitude to say we're going to ignore the things that were bad or are bad. It's a promise of hope and joy that those things are not the last word. They never have to be the last word. There is a word beyond that. It's the word of resurrection. It's the word of life. It's the word of hope. It's the word of joy. And it's because of that, because we believe that it is true that our stories are ones in which all will be well, that we can embrace hope and joy. And that's what I want to invite you to do this Advent season. Advent season is a season of preparation. It's a season of longing. It's a season of waiting. 
It's a season that sort of culminates in a way at the Christmas Eve service where we celebrate the coming of Jesus and we long for his second coming. I want to invite you in this preparation season to intentionally choose hope and joy. What would it look like if people saw us this Advent season and said, I don't know what it is, but something about them screams hope and joy. Screams hope and joy. Let's be intentional about it because it is a word that our world needs. It is a world that our society needs, that hope and joy are not pie in the sky. They're not um, sort of uh, uh, ignorant of reality. They are something that can be embraced, something that can be chosen into. Here are some ways you might intentionally choose hope and joy this Christmas season. Pick something specific to renew your hope for, to long for, or to start hoping for. Let yourself feel the belief that it will come, that the good will break through, that there will be deliverance. Maybe it's a promise from God that you find in Scripture. Maybe it's something you've been praying about and waiting for. Write it down somewhere where you can see it regularly and just remind yourself, I am hoping for this. I am hoping for this. It will do something to you. Maybe it's time to reconsider how you relate to the past, whether it's your own or your family's history. What might it look like to not run away from it or to fight against it, but acknowledge it without letting it define you? How can you embrace hope and joy there? Maybe it's simply entertaining that you can embrace joy. Letting a sense of gladness fill you. Might make you uncomfortable at first. Some of us are not used to feeling it. But let that sense of well-being make its way into your heart. Joy inevitably changes how we interact with our world. Let it affect how you relate in your work, how you relate in your community, how you relate in your school. Let it come out. Let people notice it. Let that sense of well-being find home in you this Christmas season. I'm going to pray as we... intentionally choose hope and joy this season. And as I pray, the worship team is going to join me on stage. But think of how you might want to embrace hope and joy this season as I pray. Gracious God, we sang joyful, joyful, we adore thee. In a few weeks, we're going to sing joy to the world. Those are not words to take lightly. A revolutionary message. The belief that all will be well. It goes against everything we see and hear. It goes against the narrative that is communicated to us. And yet it is true. It is true because you are the promise keeper. It is true because you are the one who has credibility. It is true because you are the one who delivers. It is true because you are the one you are the one who doesn't let what the world says is final stand especially when it's not good you write a better story you speak life you bring resurrection lord may we be the kind of people filled with joy may we be the kind of people who hope who believe in the things that have been promised. 
not because we are ignorant of circumstances, but because we trust in you. Lord, may that impact how we interact with those around us. May it bring goodness to our communities. May it inspire change in those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.